Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey guys, welcome to And the Writer Is. I'm your host, Ross Golan. I've written with hundreds of artists and writers over the years, and my favorite part of each session is the first hour when we catch up about life, the industry, politics, composition, whatever. So this is a journey of learning why people write songs, how people write songs, and most importantly, who the people are who write the songs. I'm producing this with The Great Joe London, Big Deal Music Publishing, and Mega House Music Management. If you want to listen to the songs we discuss in this podcast, follow us on our socials, find out about special live events, or buy that merch, aka that hat I always wear, go to our website, www.andthewriteris.com. For a little bit of context, we just wanted you to know that a lot of these were recorded before quarantine. And as we know, a lot has changed in 2020. So again, please stay safe out there. And enjoy the new episodes of And the Writer Is. Welcome to And the Writer Is. I am your host, Ross Golan. Today's three-time Grammy-nominated multi-platinum producer is one of those legit composers with an instrumentalist prowess that reaches far beyond the mainstream. The depth of his tasteful musicianship magnifies the records he writes and produces in a way few jazz musicians have. That explains why his credits put his name along with the likes of Travis Scott, Stevie Wonder, Snoop Dogg, Herbie Hancock, Lala Hathaway, Leon Bridges, etc., etc., etc. In fact, his contributions helped define the career of longtime collaborator Kendrick Lamar. Oh, and we haven't even mentioned his own critically acclaimed projects. From his distant hometown of Los Angeles, California, this guy started producing records at 13 years old. Damn. And the writer is my new friend, Terrace Martin. Hey, hey, hey. What's up? What's up? Hello. Hey, that's a nice Fender Rose back there, man. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, it's a 1972. Oh, yeah. Like classic Rhodes. So. I'm sure that if you come and play it, it'll sound better than when I play it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, have, I have a feeling knowing, like, and we'll, we'll get into your childhood, but my assumption is that your, your studio is loaded with vintage instruments. I got, I mean, I'm on this big-ass computer right now. Let me see if I can turn the screen. I, you know what? I can't, but I have a, I have, I have a lot of, like, right in front of me where I'm, I'm looking at you, but I'm looking at a wall of, like, uh, Fender Rose, Mini Moog, Arp Odyssey, Prophet, Vocorders, Wall of Saxophones. So sick. I mean, and, and water and natural spring bottles of water. Perfect. And uh, gotta stay hydrated. 
papers around when, a lot when of I papers. saw I was gonna say that the you know this guy started producing records at 13 years old which is also when I coincidentally was having my bar mitzvah so nice. Like, nice. clearly clearly like my my childhood is not the exact same as your childhood yeah because, you know uh it, my my parents were not musicians um and yours were and so I kind of want to start from the beginning man you're uh you're from LA, so tell me, tell me how how uh, your childhood is like. I'm I'm from LA, you know. Um, um, I was a little kid, like in the '80s, in South Central Los Angeles, Inglewood, uh, that that whole area. And I grew up at a time when, uh, uh, like, it was it was a lot of musicians that lived in our community. Now, like, it, it was a lot of clubs, so musicians could play. So, being a musician. Was was I mean as far as the the business and the job part of it back in the seventies and the eighties and everything like you know and I mean the sixties and way before I was born but in the eighties I remember every musician that we knew had a gig like five nights a week playing here four nights a week playing like a musician could actually in Los Angeles just do that and feed his family and have a nice three bedroom two bathroom sixteen hundred square foot house nice backyard and take care of the whole family you know at, at one point. Um, and I would say, uh, I would say, so many musicians, man, was doing was doing so well. And then, you know, as as music started changing, live instrumentation started going out, the drum machines started coming in, and you know, um, you know, a lot of different things, keyboards and, and different things like that. So, my father is a musician, and my mother is. So, I was part of one of those households that had working parent that was working musicians but then i also remember when music changed as music got more as hip-hop got more strong and r&b got more strong those things a lot of the live music things start fading out so uh and and cable tv was a big deal too because cable started having pay-per-view where people in the early 80s and the mid 80s start stop even coming going out to even hear people play because like i mean like you could go see anybody on, on television at that time or, or you know, it, it just wasn't as as many things going on and as music, hip hop and R&B and different other things got popular, more like sequence music and music that's based on computers and everything like that. The live musician thing started to fade in LA and as that was starting to fade, then you see a thing of all these musicians that could take care of themselves with just music, they start getting day jobs and playing at night. So then you saw that a lot in LA and then you saw when, when, you know, like for me personally in South Central LA, like one of the biggest dips after the day jobs and the musicians, and then it's like crack cocaine hit real bad. And then that just wiped, ev- that just, that was like an atomic bomb, like in the ghetto. It just wiped out so many motherfucking families and so many women and so many men. It was literally like, 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 it was literally like a bomb that dropped in all, all, all ghettos around the world, I'm sure. But we're, if we're talking about me, we're talking about South Central Los Angeles and th- those areas of Los Angeles. It was like a bomb and, and people just couldn't. It was hard to take care of yourself, man, with, 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 with that horrible demon on your back. And a lot of people was affected by that. So mixed with that, you know, the black music community and all these other things. And, and then it was down there. It wasn't totally wiped out, but it was like it was like a, like like maybe. I mean, it was like the fucking Walking Dead to me. When I think back now, it was like the Walking How Dead. Great. I mean, it, you grew up in the '80s, so this is right I, in childhood. So you, I was like, I vividly remember these memories between four and eleven years old. Are like these very clear of everybody smiling, 
Then everybody smiling, kind of. Then everybody smiling. Then crack, gang banging, all that shit started, you know. But really, the dope came in and, and fucked up everything. The dope and the different level of guns. Everybody had guns in the 80s, but the different level of guns with different money. That's when you, that's when you start getting like the nine millimeter and you start getting assault rifles in these communities. So this shit started being like a war zone, crack cocaine, all this shit. But even through this, when that was going crazy, certain people was rising to the top with their music. And I was a young kid hearing this shit like Teddy Riley with the soundtrack to that era. And then you had Dr. Dre with NWA and that whole movement. So those two things was like the soundtrack to what to what at one point was like for me and I'm sure a lot of people, you know, like like one of the one of the darkest ages in Los Angeles history is the crack era. Period. How did, how did you know your your dad's a jazz drummer and, and like you were saying, he had to I'm I'm sure like all instrumentalists having to adjust to the electronic part of it, but also to add in all the, you know, like you're saying, the, this drug bomb that happens, how do your, you know, how did his direct community deal with, like, how did he, was he part of a trio? Was he part of a, he was, he was, he, he was, he, he, he he is, um, a, a lot of sessions, a lot of jazz gigs around town, a lot of different groups, but how, how it affected, them is, I mean, you got to think, I mean, like, you know, like you got this whole pandemic thing going on. Like this is the first time we, we've all seen this. It's the first time. So that's why you have motherfuckers buying up all the toilet paper. You know what I'm saying? You have motherfuckers, you know, I, I'm guilty. I was buying up so much shit waters. I bought up so much. I'm still drinking the water and it wasn't about greed. It was about, yo, let me just get everything that me and my family need to tuck away. Cause they saying. This shit is real. So fuck that. I'm getting mine. You know what I'm saying? Make sure everybody tucked away. And I got enough shit the way my community was cool. My mom's pops. So they ordered and I didn't want them to have to drive. So anyway, I'm saying I have to say this was the first thing you or I have ever, ever seen this. So imagine this. Imagine all your life you've been practicing and playing your ass off. You've been, you've been, now you got to this point of playing where your music is going. You could do it for a living. You finally did it like your heroes. Your heroes are Miles Davis and John Coltrane and, and part, everybody that's just doing it at a high level. You know, even the funk guy, you know, Rick James and Bobby Walt. I mean, your, your heroes are, are moving around and all of a sudden you get to this level, you come to Los Angeles, everything is moving. And then the crack, I mean, then crack happens. Yeah. And then but 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 the reason why a lot of people had turned the drugs, I believe why a lot of my my family and community turned the drugs is because after all the gigs dried up and no place to play in Los Angeles are, you know, it was is is as an artist, that's torture. That's torture to not get, you know, an artistic hug or to even not get a hand clap if you do well or bad. That's just torture to not be able to communicate when you're on earth to do such a such a spiritual community thing. You know, so, yeah. you know, the only way you, it's like a bad relationship with a man or a woman or anything, whatever people choose these days, kind of like, you know, a lot of us get into these horrible relationships with, with, with other people because we're feeling down at a time or we're, we're, we are feeling hurt. We're like an open wound and anything could get in. And we're like a, we're so fucking sad that any hug will feel good at this point, any hug. And crack was able to provide that hug to a lot of brothers and sisters at that time. Cause it was yeah. a fucked up thing, so that turned into, you feel me? That's that's a real thing. So long story short, I'm a product of that. First of all, and the the you know when when hip hop and computers everything started getting popular, 
I used to hear a lot of older musicians saying, man, they, they're not hiring us no more. It's, it's kind of interesting. It's like some of the things that did a fair share in dissolving live music is all, are also the main entities and main ingredients that helped build me. Yeah. So it's like, you know, that's why I always try to play on my records. You know, my, my dear friend and my brother, Craig Brockman, always taught me as a record producer, every time you play a different instrument on the record, it supplies a job for a group of musicians, especially if it's a hit motherfucking record. If it's a hit record. If it's a hit record and I'm playing jazzy chords, that means it's the new shit. Everybody could work. Saxophone, everybody could work. Bass lines, everybody could work. So, you know, I never forget that time in L.A. when it was really dark. So I keep that in my head with everything I do. That's why I use so much instrumentation because I really want to keep in, I really want to keep the uh, the musicians inspired and employed. You know, I wish I wish everyone I, I hope people are listening to this actually pay attention to what you just said, which is that part of your job as a producer and and as an A and R person and whatnot is to recognize that you are employing families and you are giving opportunities to people and that that's why you know, paying union fees and not complaining about it. And that's why making sure people get credit where credit's due and open yeah. up that that matters. And I think a lot of times people get really cheap about it or they, they complain about, yeah. well, this is, you know, you don't need that too. And you don't, you know, you don't understand this is how we get health insurance or this is how they get, you know, whatever, yeah. how they can have their kids go to school or whatever it is. It's like, it's, it's, it has a real tangible difference in musician yeah. families. I think a lot of times people don't, recognize what you just said but well you you know what i don't i don't i don't want to give the excuses no more for people not recognizing i think people a lot of people just don't care especially in this business you know the musician is always the first call but the last to be treated well you know uh anything you know i i i, I took it amongst myself years ago to stop going on tour with, with different people you know the only people i do tours with now is herbie hancock and me and Robert Glasper have some things going on. And I, I do tours with people that treat me like a human. You know, I don't, I, I'm never really, uh, you know, uh, I just, I, I just had to take a step back, but I had to take, I had to take a step back, not for me. You know, I just felt like I could help my community. I was always hooking up everybody with gigs. I was always plugging up everybody with Snoop Dogg, everybody with Kendrick, everybody with, I was always, I was always the connector with everybody, putting everybody with everybody, but it was no business to it. It was just hooking up everybody and then everybody go with everybody. Then I get, you know, some, oh, thanks Terry for helping me out. Then I get, man, I wish you never would have called me for that because I never got paid. So I got all these things. So what I start to say is I got to put some of this shit in order, but for me to put it in order, I got to step back from the tour world, from all that stuff. And you know what? Let me get more cracking as a as a composer and a record producer. That way, before I talk shit and try to change shit, let me become part. Let me see what's going on up there. Let me become part of that weird-ass infrastructure that treats artists so motherfucking weird. Let me actually become part and just see what how they think. And I realize, I realize uh, uh, it's two things, brother. A lot of them, like you say, don't realize it. But most of them don't give a fuck. You know? I'm real. And, and and, and and literally, I mean, this is the problem for songwriters the whole time. It's it's it's, it's, it's hard. Explain that no, you don't understand. The whole industry falls if you get rid of songwriters. Yeah, yeah. The whole industry goes yeah. away if you get rid of instrumentalists. Like it literally yeah. just falls because there's no there's no music. I, you know, the recording academy 
when you know they they're pretty notorious about not giving credit to instrumentalists there's no grammys for instrumentalists they're really you know very few for songwriters and and a lot of them view it as well we're the recording academy and i just want to see them put a microphone in the middle of a room with no music mm-hmm. and then they should record that and then they should give awards to that but yeah. if you're going to have music or songs being played and that's what you're giving the awards for give credit a little bit to the people who, you know, if you're if if you're a key grip, I think you might even get an Emmy for a show that wins an Emmy. Yeah. You know? It's like, yeah. why would you, you know, I, I just think that the idea that you wouldn't give a sax player a Grammy for playing on a record is 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 insanely myopic. It's yeah. so small. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. I, 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 uh, uh. Well, that that's also why mo- on the most of the records I play sax on, I'm always a featured artist. I don't fuck around. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, like, I mean I that's the smartest. Yeah, and I and I do that, and I do that because I, I I learned to do that. First of all, I tell somebody wanted me to play on a record the other day, and I said, "Man, you don't even want me to play on a record. I'm going to charge you a lot. I can't play horn parts. I got a solo. I got to get so many X amount of points. I got to get. I'm starting off the top with 20% publishing from a solo. So it's like." Bro, you may not want to fuck with me for it. And I tell artists because it, it, here's my thing. And you're right. But I also believe we have the power. And if we more of us speak up about these things and say, no, I will not do that record unless I get that. And then if the other guy says it too, see, the motherfucking problem is, because I've tried to round up a gang of motherfuckers for this. You try to get all the artists and musicians to stand on one thing. And it's always one three or four or five other motherfuckers that's new in town that will come up and say, I'll do it for anything. And then they fuck up the whole thing. And then when we talk about these conversations, we can't go make valid points because the thirsty motherfuckers that's really fucking it up for themselves is fucking it up for the whole thing by keep saying yes. This is why to this day, I don't go on the road. I don't do certain records. Like if you're not going to pay me my rate and what I want, it's not a problem. I'd rather train my dogs and practice on the saxophone and piano. I don't want to deal with it. You I only want it, man. Re- There's a difference. There are a lot of people who are who would ask for that twenty percent and those points and that credit. Who don't nearly put the kind of stamp on songs that you're when you're yeah. when you're doing that. You're putting your heart into it. I I oh, know yeah. the records that you're featured on, and those are not. You're not just like in the background being like playing just. A, a nah, little, yeah. like some dainty yeah. like sax part you're like you yeah. you make it into a thing you know and let me let me let me, let me be clear about this you know when i say that i'm not really saying 20 percent. what i'm saying is that i demand i don't ask for shit i demand if i play a saxophone solo i demand ownership of that song because i'm part of the composition it's only fair it's only fair it's only fair you know but anyway long story so all that plays into why I feel like I, I just, I do records and I put so much musicians on the records because I want to make sure that, that that shit just stays in front of me because I was, I was affected by people not doing that, you know what I'm saying, as a young kid. Why did you choose saxophone over drums when, you know, there, I know a lot of producers who are great drummers first. I know a lot of producers who are, you know, good guitarists first. I know even a lot of trumpet players. We know a bunch of trumpet players who are amazing arrangers Mm-hmm. There, I feel like there's, you know, there are a limited amount of sax players that have been able to cross over. 
was it Coltrane? Who was it who was like, I'm going to be a sax player? It was this beautiful woman in Spanish Harlem. When I first, when I first uh, went, when I went to go hear my dad play at a gig one night, she, uh, she asked me, now, do you play an instrument like your father? At the time I was like, nah. And she'd been down and told me, if you do, you should play the saxophone. I was young and I was I was just getting the girls a whole lot. She was. I said, "Why?" She said, "Because you could make love to your woman without touching her. You just gotta play the horn for it." And I got really excited and I was like, "I'm gonna play the fucking saxophone." And <laughs> I started playing the saxophone, but I, I I fell in love with every everything. Right. That was my. That was my. That was one of the main intros to it because I was just so fascinated how this instrument affected this woman. You know what I'm saying? You know, and I, I you know. What kind of saxophone is your saxophone? Like, if you're, if I'm gonna say, hey, you want to play sax on something, do you? I, is it, you know, are you a tenor sax? Oh, uh, alto. A sax. Alto. I mean, I own all of them. If you know, but but I I rather just play alto. That's my that's my voice. Sure. Um, what brought you? Like, when was the moment that you're like, okay, I'm gonna start actually thinking of it as writing songs and thinking of it as producing records there's a there's a difference between you know i'm gonna play on records and i'm gonna start playing with all these people and like you were saying you stop touring at one point and you're like oh i can produce records why what was what's the switch to being like i'm i'm now gonna get into produce actually making the song yeah i made a commitment to really produce and really write songs Young, like like 16, 17. Cause I'm I'm from LA and my heroes was always Battle Cat and DJ Quick and Dr. Dre. So I was I I was the way I was more intrigued with that before jazz. You know what I'm saying? So I was more of a fan of that way before the saxophone or anything. So I was more edging and going to that world, messing with drum machines in fifth grade and you know, samplers in sixth grade. Then I got then my mom bought my first sampling drum machine, my EPS, my at, at seventh grade, I think. So I was always chopping up samples. I was a Tribe Called Quest fan and everything. So, you know, that that was always in it. I never looked at it like separate. I always looked at it like I gotta do everything I can. But I just but I knew if I was gonna do everything, I wanted to do the realest shit of everything. I didn't want to do none of the kind of everything. I wanted to do if we gonna do if I'm gonna play death metal. I want to play it with the most gruesome motherfuckers that believe in death metal. If I'm playing blues, I want to go play it with the soulfulest motherfuckers from Mississippi that's playing the fuck out the blues. If I'm playing jazz, I want to play that with Herbie Hancock. If I'm doing gangster shit, I want to fuck with Snoop. You feel me? If I'm doing other gangster shit, YG, if I'm doing all around everything, I'm going to get with Kendrick. So it's like, I always want to, you know, just whatever is the, what I believe to be, and this is my opinion, this is not law. If I believe it to be the highest level of that thing, then that's, and the more I don't know about it is the more I want to dive into it. Of course. You know, so, so, so the more I think of a situation that I'm going to be uncomfortable and be the odd guy out the group is the more I want to dive into that. What is, why, do, why do you do that? Because I like, I'm addicted to challenges. Cause I'm addicted to breakthroughs. Cause my whole life has been nothing but challenge, and the breakthroughs have been so amazing. Like I'm addicted to challenges. Like I, I welcome challenges. Just like we talking about this record business, um, man. I, you know, the the flip side to me doing all this with musicians and and being a product of this, I actually love the bad with the good. I love it all. I take it all in because you can't decipher what's what without understanding both ends of the stick. Mm-hmm. So, 
you know, it's, it's just like I, I never step. It's all one. Everything is one. When we, because we're about the same age, like there, there was this period in when you're talking about tribe and whatnot through the, you know, mid, like there was a, that Black Star and To Live and all these guys who are really using real instrumentation, Common, all these guys that are using real instruments. And it felt like, that went away and then started coming back partly because of the records you're a part of. Um, why do you think it went away? Did Or did it not go away and it just wasn't like, it just wasn't getting the, you know, the press and all this stuff? Because there was this yeah. movement, right? Am I, or am I missing? Something? No, 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 no. It's, it's like, it's, it's, it's all of that. Basically, um, it didn't go away. It wasn't as prevalent. It wasn't as there, but it didn't go away. And people always was using musicians on records, but, you know, a lot of people wasn't giving credit. Or when they give credit to the person that played the instrument, it would be just like, zoom, 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 zoom. they wouldn't, it wasn't cool to like, it was kind of weird. I feel like a, a lot of people, in general, a lot of people think it's cool to get to get all the credit, to take all the credit, to make sure I did everything. And Usually the motherfuckers that said they did everything ain't done a motherfucking thing. I've learned in the studio. You know what I'm saying? Uh, the most successful people are the people that understand group effort and, and together. And the biggest ego in the room is the music. But um, I, I think jazz, like when you're in, when you're in a jazz band growing up or you're in a, you know, whatever combo or whatever your trio is or whatever it is, you learn really quick how important the other players are. And your whole job is to make them shine. That's the whole it's hey. a sport. And we just don't have that in. Yeah. There's such an ego in the in the like like popular music sort of world in the commercial world. There's such an ego attached to yeah. I did it all, even when you didn't. Versus yeah. in a jazz band, you're like, check out this guy's solo that you're about to hear, and then everybody sits back and just kind yeah. of tries to yeah. emphasize. You know, it's just yeah, it's, it's so different in the other worlds. But I mean, what for me, I'm me. I don't change. I'm gonna keep my same shit everywhere I go because that's just the truth, though. The truth. Life is about helping somebody out. Life is about giving your all so that person could be their all and that person giving their all so the other person could be their all. And it's supposed to be a train effect with life. You know, the same thing with music and art and everything. So it's, you know, it's supposed to be a train effect. But for me, man, I I, I always maintain who the fuck I am. Like, nah, I'm gonna get with my crew. We all understand giving. And I benefit so much more off working with people than working alone. I don't even have a desire to work alone ever. Like big, you know, just going through a little bit of your discography. And obviously, you know, I, I think, you know, you went to CalArts and then you left CalArts to go on tour. And like you, you've have this, you know, you've clearly studied music to as far as you can study music in in the US in a structural sense and then you go and you you're doing you know playing with the the some of the biggest artists of all time um but, but when how do you get involved in Snoop like when you start working with him it's like it feels like that's the real shift in in being you know in uh you know do it, you've been doing your own music on the side releasing albums but from not cracking from not cracking to cracking that's what Snoop yeah. did. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, it's like a serious, and then it's yeah. nonstop. Like, I don't think you have a break from, for the last 12 years. Nah. You know, nah. but how does, how do you go from, 
yeah, how do you go from zero to a hundred? Or, or it seems like you just switched paths. Who, who invited you in? How did this happen? Snoop, uh, man, man, my brother is a, is a guitarist named Marlon, Marlon Williams. He's like, he, he's on all of our records from the West Coast from like 1995 till yesterday. Marlon Williams, um, all the Kendrick shit, YG shit, Snoop shit, Quincy. Her, I mean, it's anyway. So, you know, at one point when I was like 17, I, I moved in with him and he was already working with Snoop since 96. He lived off Crenshaw, but we was also playing like in local churches and different gospel things together. So I was always with Marlon. I always said, man, if, first of all, I prayed to work with Snoop Dogg, Dr. Dre. I prayed to work at 12, 13 years. I prayed. I, I I was doing beats for them when I was 13 in my head. I was already like, I was, I tell everybody, I was built, I was built to work with Snoop Dogg. Like he helped build, design me. So, but going back to him. So one day, man, I never will forget. I was on tour. I was on tour with God's Property, a gospel group. And when I was in Minneapolis in the wintertime and uh, I was walking down the street. I didn't, I didn't have no money. Um, I was just walking down the street saying, I need to make some more motherfucking money, man. Shit, I got, I'm sick of playing this music, being broke. This shit is not fly. I can't get no Jordans. I, I, can't, I need a new car. You feel me? I'm just not looking my bad. I need some motherfucking money. This shit is weird. And I was like, man, I wish Snoop would call her like Marlon. I need a push. And I said that shit. And I looked at my chip phone. Chip phone is an illegal phone. We used to get these chip phones, the burnout phones. You go to the phone, man. He paid a bill for six weeks, and then you got to go give him another hundred dollars for another phone. So I looked at my chip phone, and it was this, this, this. I thought it was the last day the chip, last two days the chip didn't work because my phone hadn't rained in two days, you know. Uh, and it was more than more than today. Snoop Dogg needs a saxophone player for uh, a TV show. I said, "Man, put me on." He's like, "Yeah, cool. Rehearsals are tomorrow." I said, "Tomorrow." He said, yeah, I got to go. Click. I called my mom. I borrowed 400 bucks. I hopped on the plane. I got to L.A. And I was just, I was, I was, I was in the band. I was playing sax in the band. But my, the whole time in the band, I had a back pocket of beats. And I was just waiting for my opportunity to play him some of the beats. But that opportunity took about two years, though. No, no, about a year. Because first, I was working with Superfly first. It, it took about, and then one day he just asked, man, anybody got some new beats? And he couldn't even get out. Anybody got some new before I was like, bam, I had the CD right here. And I said, dog, man, I've been working on holding this thing. You're like sleeping with it. Yeah. Dinner with it. Watch this. At this point, I was making like 50 beats a week. So every week I would have at least 20 beats on the CD, 20 new beats, 20 new beats, 20 new beats. I would just do, I would just do beats all day, beats and practice on the horn all day. Beats, 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 beats. And then when I finally got to him, you know, I was ready. And he ended up rapping like on most of those records after that. I just, I started moving in with him. And then we just started fucking with each other. Man, we got real close. We are real close, you know. And uh, he, right, he he took me from a boy to a man. Man, he taught me a lot of uh, music things, but more than music things, man things. He taught me how to be a better father, a more upstanding person, an honest person, an on-time person, a person about his business, 100% about his business. Like we could be friends. We could be lovers, we could be everything, but the minute a signature is up here on our agreement, it's hundred percent business and nothing's personal. So that's what Snoop Dogg taught me. So that's that's why after him, I was able to grow and do so much because I had these tools. He gave me a tool bag 
before he sent me off on that field and that tool bag, it was a tool bag of a Rolodex of relationships because he put me with Quincy. He put me with everybody and uh, some tools. And he said, you are, you graduated from the Snoop Dogg school. Let's see what you got. And he threw me out there like, like parents. And, you know, I just, I always make sure I, I came back to him. I was with him all day yesterday. It's not a week go by. I'm not with him though. So we talk every day. So, you know, let me know when you need a third wheel. Um, I mean, you're gonna, I mean, I'm going to go hang with you guys. I don't know. Um, you might faint fucking with us. You might faint, man. It's a lot of, it's a lot. Well, well now because of the quarantine, we've got to smoke 12 feet away and we got to have our own, but we make sure we got four and five of our own and we just partake and have a great old time. That's how you do it. All right. So you meet, is when you meet Quincy, is he, did you already know Herbie Hancock at that point? Or like, mm. are there, did Quincy introduce you to like, nah. how do you, Quincy's like the the godfather, right? Like I don't think people Snoop. realize he's the top, right? Of yes. the of the music of the music world, there's Quincy and then there's everybody else. So yeah. if he if he knows who you are, then he can he can place you in different places. Yeah. So Well, you know, with with Quincy, me and his relationship was a, a lot of music. Um I produced a lot on his last record, Quincy's last record. And I'm always doing stuff with him. Um uh so Snoop, Snoop put me with Quincy because we was working on a project. Clark Terry, which is a great jazz trumpeter. He was Miles Davis teacher, Quincy teacher, friends with Dizzy. And he was actually the first uh, black musician on television as far as being in a, in a band on NBC in New York. So Clark Terry was Quincy's teacher and Quincy wanted to do something special, submerging hip hop and, and uh, jazz back then. And Snoop was like, hey, I, I got my young soldier. He'd been in training. I, I got somebody I need you to meet. And we went up to Quincy's house and he said, I just tears. And that, that was like 15 years ago. And it's, 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 it's just been on ever since. I got with Herbie. I had been hearing, um, after um, after I did To Pimp a Butterfly, I had been hearing rumors that Herbie Hancock was looking for me. And I was telling people, man, get What a crazy out. rumor. That you just, know, was, like, that's not, that's not actually happening. <laughs> yeah, like, man, just shut the fuck up. And then one day, <laughs> my friend Keon Harrell called me. He's like, hey, I just heard. I'm in, ta- I'm in, I think, Korea at a festival, and I just heard Herbie mention your name. That just heard Herbie Hancock. I'm like, ah. The next day, Robert Glasper called me and said, hey, Herbie wants you to, Herbie want to work with you. He wants to meet you. Next time he's in L.A., can you meet up with him? I'm like, hell yeah. So they called me about um, three weeks later. I was waiting by that motherfucking phone for three weeks. They called me three weeks later, and they was in Capitol Studios, and when I walked in, it was Herbie, Wayne Shorter, Robert, it was all the cats, and he was like Terrence, and he had all my music, and we just, we just hit it off, and I, I just been over there every day since then, working on this album, you know, amazing album, doing, doing music, like touching different areas I've never touched. Him too, we're just being very explore, doing things that me or him haven't done. We've done signs of these things separately, but you know, it's interesting, like working with your master teacher. You know, I was gonna say, how did, how did your, you know, how do your parents view? At this point, you know, if you're working with Herbie and you grew up with a jazz drummer as a dad, how does oh, he see proud? I mean, that like that must yeah. be, I yeah. you can't beat that. That's yeah. Well, he's, he's the top jazz player in the world right now. You know, that's my first set of training is my father. So my father's looking at his 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 one and only student graduate his school. So that's 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 I'm I'm sure that makes him feel proud. You know what yeah. I'm saying? That's beautiful. Um. How do you meet Kendrick Lamar? Because that's, you know, 2011 is when you first have your first releases with him. How do you yeah. guys 
that long ago. We was we was t- we was tighter way earlier than that though, uh, way earlier than that um, when he was in the high school. I met Kendry. I was on house arrest for like four months in L.A. I was on house arrest, and my homeboy had a private had a private business. So the, the rules of house arrest was you got to call the day before if you want to go out the next day, but you can only go to work and you got to get signed out by your boss. So my homie had a, had some little private business. So he he saw I stayed gone. He signed out for me. He was like, hey, I'm going to sign out for you, man. But I, I need to bring you by a studio, man. Man, can meet these, these brothers from Watts, you know, and over there. So I went over there and it was Top Dog and, and, and J-Rock. And then uh, he introduced me to him. That first night, I did a beat that first night, like, Man, I did a beat that 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 might have been two thousand six, two thousand seven, something like that. Uh, yeah, you know what I'm saying. So, but then after that, I I just stayed over there. I was on house arrest. I was over there every day doing beats and having them sign off for me. And I just did a gang of records and we just bonded and we just was tight ever since. You know. You when know? he gets, you know, I feel like Mad City's like the first time he becomes, you know, like a like a household name amongst. Them in the music industry, mm. and it, there's one thing when you work with classic guys like Snoop and with Herbie and some of these names, where you know it's an honor to work with those kinds of musicians. But it's a different thing when you're part of an artist becoming well known, like watching that journey with them and being part of that journey. How did it feel, and what it, what was it like to be part of starting to see a star rise? Unbelievable. I had never seen nothing like that in my life so close. It was like watering. It's like I had been watering all these plants for years and none of them grew. And then or they would grow and one would die or they would grow, you know, and you know, I'm, I'm doing metaphors for, you know, or they, yeah. they would grow or just something, you know, but when, when I was uh, being with Kendrick is when I really, really tapped into releasing ego and, and uh, building building almost like the Voltron concept. Like looking at everybody in the room, you know, like Voltron, you know, where somebody's the leg, somebody's the left leg, right leg, right arm, the torso, but even with more components, you know, not, not, not more, you know, not, um, I love Thundercats, you know, I love, and I love Steven Thundercat. I love Thundercat. Uh, but with uh, Thunder, even Thundercats, everybody had an individual ego. Everybody was their own thing. Voltron, they wasn't shit until they came together. They would always get fucked up until they was Voltron, you know. And I think that represents life, you know. I think when 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 you come together, you're just indestructible. You're stronger. And it's something about us when we all together. It's just everything goes the right way. We don't do it for hit records for a single. We we do it for a feeling. And I think once you once you stop doing it for that feelings when everything's irrelevant and that, that crew is a hundred percent feeling. I love that. After Kendra, after, you know, he starts to break, you work with YG kind of early on for him too. And that's, do you start to have expectations that what you work on has a certain level of success? No, no, hell no, 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 no. No, no, no. I was already around Quincy and all these cats for years. So I've already been prepared to like, you know, uh, 
I don't expect the same thing twice. I, I have new expectations every time, you know. My only expectation is for a feeling all the time. Like, let's just get a good feeling. That's the only consistent thing. But whether artist goes like crazy Kendrick, crazy YG, or whether it's it's 300 people on Instagram like them, as long as it's that feeling, I feel I feel accomplished. How do you have time during this to also be pursuing your art, like putting out albums as an artist? Like throughout, uh, throughout all this, I mean, like we haven't even gotten to the last five years where to pimp a butterfly and like, you know, just, just the just huge, huge albums are starting to come out after that, and you're still putting out records. How are you finding time to do that? Because my when I first got on, when I first started getting on, I, I never so many artists, so many musicians, so many musicians lose their own path from building others' paths or helping others so much, which is cool. But 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 I still have dreams myself. I have individual dreams. I have group dreams. I have different sets of dreams. So I'm working hard at all, all, all of them. I'm putting action behind all of my dreams. And one of my dreams is to keep on putting out records until I, I can't breathe anymore. Mm. You know, no matter what level, I just, remember it's a feeling. I just want to put out music. I just want to put out music, you know, so when people go back years later, they have a catalog of this heartfelt music that that, that, that that they could always go to. It's like when I I first started getting into that is when I started going to Amoeba in Hollywood a whole lot. I used to spend thousands of dollars a month at Amoeba because Battlecat taught me, Battlecat taught me, um, you know, every, every, pretty much just looking at him do it every time he'd get a check or a lot of money, he would go buy a piece of equipment or go, go buy some records. It was always put money back in the game that you eat from. Don't buy bootleg shit. Spend the money. Don't bargain shop for keyboards and records. Spend the money. Somebody made this equipment so you could feed your children. So I spent $1,000 at Amoeba, but every time I went, if you look at the Miles Davis section and the jazz section, it's it's like the catalog is ill. And I'm talking about from Prestige to Columbia to the modern hit records and at Warner. Like, it's so much catalog that I was like, you know, everybody wants to play like that person and play like that and do that and, and tour there. Fuck that. I want a catalog like that person. I want a motherfucking catalog like Miles Davis and I'm going to get it. That's my dream. I want a big catalog. That's my What's thought. the best Miles Davis album? The Plug Nickel, 1965, Live at the Plug Nickel. Herbie Hancock on piano, Wayne Shorter on tenor saxophone, Ron Carter on bass, Tony Williams. And it could be that was the first, that was the night they started trying different shit and breaking up the music in ways that Miles didn't even know because the band didn't even discuss what was about to happen with to Miles. And Miles would count off a song like this and they would go crazy fast. Or when Miles would play slow, they would go fast. When Miles plays fast, they, they was doing all the opposite things to kind of shift the music and they didn't. Herbie said they didn't tell Miles. They just played behind him like this. And just hopefully they kept the gig and Miles loved it. And that style of playing is how we all play now. The plug nickel birth. I think the plug nickel birth stretching in the aggressive way of uh, breaking up things with keeping things intact musically. When people ask you if you're, uh, you know, what kind of musician you are, like I say I'm a songwriter. Sound like a below average instrumentalist if I'm being honest certainly in comparison to anything you can do do you think of yourself as a um, you know as a sax player a keyboardist a producer a writer like well, how do you describe yourself um, 
what what's your soul when you have that catalog and we all go through this discography of yours in 50 years and you've got all these albums you're a sax player right or are you a producer or are you a writer I'm just a black artist that's full of black art and it, it spills out in different ways like I'm not, I don't know what the fuck like you know, do I play the saxophone? Yes. Do I love the saxophone? Yes. If something happens where I can't play the saxophone, am I gonna stop doing music? No. Do I love writing songs? Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's like it's it's just art. I'm just trying to get it out, however, I, however, however I could get out, however I could get it out. You know, at one point, I thought of myself as I'm just a saxophonist. At one point, I thought of myself as I'm just a producer. But if I call myself a person that does all different colors, types, walks of life, the different art forms. And I have this community. I was telling somebody else, I said, it's hard to put art in the box because art is the only place where I haven't experienced racism yet. So if art is the place I haven't experienced racism, why the fuck would I want to put it in separate things to create tension amongst each other, how America does us? Why would I want to do that with art? So it's like, fuck that. I'm, I'm everything. You know what I'm saying? I've, and honestly, I've, I've only experienced racism a few times and I'm going through different shit. And usually when I've, when I've uh, 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 you know, been on tour down south and the bus get pulled over or anything like that. But, you know, I've, uh, you know, in, in art, I haven't experienced racism. So I don't want to start bringing those classes in, into that. That's why I just, I just do it. If I like it, I do it. Yeah, I mean, this is the wrong generation for genres you know we grew up going to the amoebas of the world but you know in theory we were the first generation to have stores that like you go online and they're just songs they're not real yeah so you know i i like that answer a lot if um you know speaking of racism in the music business and in art you know, this, the last few months with the Black Lives Matter movement, how do you feel like the music industry has responded to it? How do you feel like they can respond to it? Like, what can the music industry do better? Well, the mu- it I, I, feel, I feel like the music industry is a, is, is, is a little cousin to the American system, you know, um, what the music industry could do, what could how they respond? I didn't even I don't know how they responded because they're still taking everybody publishing. So I don't know how. I'm sure they're responding fine, like they always do in their own world. But the music business, not art, the music business, I always said needs to be torn down and built back again. You know, it needs to be torn down and built back again. You know, um, just like the system. People say. We got to fight the system, do this. I, I believe with this shit needs to be tore down and built. It's restructured. You know what I'm saying? Um, I don't really know how the music industry really responded because I don't really know what the fuck they're doing because uh, I try to stay away from them. You know, my lawyer deals with that. I make sure all my points, my publishing right. I make sure everything resorts back to me in five years. I only do I only do licensing deals. So, you know, I, I know a lot more of that kind of shit. But... Um, I kind of stay away from the bullshit. That that's why I put out my own records on Sounds of Crenshaw, and I do my own thing, and I say no a lot to a lot of shit. I'm just against all that type shit. If it's cool, it's cool. If you want to show you respect me, make sure the business is right. Mm-hmm. You know. So the music industry, you know, once you know, I mean, it doesn't have respect for artists. You know, especially black artists. It doesn't have respect for uh, artists at all. But the black artists always gets the worst end that stick to me in my world. 
from my understanding. You know, um, usually if you think about it, every artist that's signed to a record label five years later, you read the press, they hate them. They want to kill them. They want to kill the record label. Oh, they don't, I'm going to, I'm going to do, I'm going to, I'm leaving the, I'm, I don't, don't, you know, it's all this shit. But we, we have the documents in the book that says, you idiot, it's bad to do this. So why do you keep doing this? We have all the documentation that tells us, you know what I'm saying? You know, but uh, I don't know how the fuck they responded to this shit, you know. It's not really their job to respond to this stuff. They're not here for that, you know. The, the record industry is here to give you a bank loan with high interest. Hmm. You know, there there was um there was in the sixties you had all kinds of music that allowed for for messages, you know, social messages and political messages, but there's not there aren't tons of genres that allow for honesty about what's actually happening in the world. Um but there's one and you're a part of it. I mean, that's that's part of the reason why Dam ends up getting uh, a, Pulis- a Pulitzer Prize. You know, I mean, you're you're working in an, in a, a part of the music industry that's actually honest and actually says things that matter. Um, do you feel as a writer, how often do you have opinions about what the lyrics are and how do you, do you get involved in that kind, that part of the writing? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I get involved with, with, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the kind of guy that comes to the studio and, and I'm, I'm, I'm available and excited to fit in wherever the artists will have me fit in, you know, whether mm-hmm. it's writing, whether it's, concept whether it's music whether it's just being there whether it's just conversation before the record whether it's just conversation at the record whether it's just listening i'm okay with being whatever piece of the puzzle i could be i'm not i'm not never the same piece over and over again sometimes i'm the counselor of a record you know what i'm saying um yeah but yeah i i i i'm i i, I dig into both sides i i probably won't fuck with you if you're not rapping and singing about shit though like if it's some corny ass cornball shit and it's not concerning the environment, I'm not fucking with you. I just, I don't know what else to say. I don't, you know, if you talking about how many bottles you popping, how many bitches you got, how many this, I'm not fucking with you, bro. Like, but I, I, but I could give you a list of some producers that I'm sure would love to for no amount of money though. And you could ask around. I don't, this is seriously like, I, if it's corny, I don't fuck with you. Who gave you the? I remember that early on, somebody saying that now nah, they don't they don't want to put out that kind of that same sort of thing. That there are other there are other producers. That's a really cool concept, but that's not really a concept for me. Is where did you get that conviction from? Is that just you having lived your life this long, or from the outset where you always like I I need to write music that matters? I grew up. I mean, I grew up around really really solid people, meaning really truthful men truthful women uh that, that identify with real shit you know what i'm saying like you know so it's like i, I don't want to be a part of no bullshit on the streets i don't eat bullshit food i don't eat mcdonald's and taco bell and burger king and i don't eat that shit uh i don't like nothing that shit you feel me i've always been like that i always dress fresh hella young i always was popular without the instrument like i just i never fuck with weak shit bro ever like i've been cool my whole life 
I swear to God to you, bro, I never, but I never fuck with the cool kids neither. I always fuck with the person nobody fucked with because I'm like, oh, they know something from junior high on up. So I always been with the quiet motherfuckers that people thought was quiet, but was masterminding everything. So I never wanted, I never wanted to be the loud dude in front because you can't get shit done like that. You know what I'm saying? So like for me to be how I am right now, and then I just learned, man, let me give you just the simple, honestly, every time I used to do them whack ass sessions for motherfuckers like that, artists, rappers, the business would be bad too. When the music was bad, the business would be worse. I, that came in common. Every time my gut didn't like the music, but I was still playing, doing a record, the money would be bad or it would take a year to get the money. I remember one, I was only, back then, like, you know, 15 some years ago, I was getting like 10,000 10, 10, a beat. But let me tell you how this breaks up. You get 10,000 a beat. You do it for an artist. Like if they talk about some bullshit, you know, the business bullshit, the A&R bullshit. So between 10, you got to get your lawyer 5%, your manager 20%. So that's 25 gone. So now you get the first half of 10, which is five, but you got to give everybody a whole percentage gross off of that first, first half. After they give you the first half, they give all the files, they mix the record, they put the motherfucking record out. Now you have to chase your other $5,000 for like sometime five, six months while the artist is taking magazine pictures, pictures with cars, chains and the AR that pop now you got instagrams where, where you can see these goofy ass ARs that steal people's shit doing dumb as so many goofy ass ARs in this business that have chains on and shit but anyway that's a different tale one day and i'm so happy i could talk this shit at this age now I, you know but anyway back then i never i saw that was a problem and i got into it with a few people about not paying me when i first got in the game i didn't understand this business is about rush get here and fuck you, I'll pay you when I want to. I didn't know that that's what their program was. But they didn't know that that was in my program. And it was met with some gangster shit. Because I'm it's, I'm a man. It's met with some other shit. So in order to avoid me from slapping motherfuckers, I would take advantage of my artistry, bro. I just said, let me fall back. Because I don't want to slap nobody and go to fuck the jail. Because I was going to beat up a few people that took advantage of me and other musicians. But I says, you know what, bro? Let me just chill, be peaceful, usa, and not fuck with them because I don't want nobody to get me that mad because that means they got control over me. So that's really why I don't fuck with certain things. I could tell in the artist's whole shit what the business is going to be like. Yeah, I mean, I think you said it. When the, music was, when the music's bad, the business is worse. It's, it's worse, bro. And we, we know that you've been through that. I've been th- we know that going in, but we still go because... We're servants of the art, but not no more, bro. I'd rather stay home and watch uh, Power over and over and over and over and over again. We're going to go to our next segment, which is a five for five. I'm going to just list five people, and I, I just want to hear uh, you know, what your thoughts are on it. Okay. No real rules, to be honest. Okay. But we got to start with Snoop. Snoop. The, the Alpha and Omega. The beginning and the end, uh, the human hard drive of all music, the master at getting along with everybody, the master at showing the highest level of respect and still responding like a human, the most honest, truthful, giving man I've ever met in my life. And I love him. I, I t- every time I talk to him, 
I tell him I love him. Sober or drunk, I tell him I love him and I appreciate him for everything he's done for me and everything he's done to the world. He's inspired so many people to do great. And uh, I, I love Snoop Dogg. I love him. Quincy Jones. Quincy Jones. Uh, huge force. Huge force. Powerful. Sweet man. Giving. Honest. Extremely, 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 extremely honest. You know, uh, teacher of life. Master of common sense, though. Like, when you think it's that deep, no, motherfucker, it's just not, the, it's just simple. Like, if you walk across the street and don't look both ways, you could die. You know, it's like simple things like that. Uh, but a master, a wizard, he's a wizard. He's Yoda. He's Yoda. Kendrick Lamar. Kendrick Lamar. Um, the son. You know, the sun that doesn't go down, you know, this, 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 this high force in the sky that just overlooks everybody and makes sure everybody has their vitamin D and make sure, you know, things grow properly. And, you know, the one that even as of us as humans, we are fucking up the world. You know, we, the environment is, we are fucking up the environment so much right now. The sun still finds time to say, okay, let me shine on these dumb motherfuckers again. They keep fucking up the environment but let me shine on them again. And that was Kendrick Lamar reminds me of. I love that. Herbie Hancock. Herbie Hancock. Like, like, like everything. Everything I just said rolled up in one. I, just, I can't get over the fact that when you're like, well, you know, I only tour with Herbie Hancock. It's just like, you know, we, we've done a hundred something episodes, at least recorded them. The, I, there aren't like four people who can talk about like, oh, I love that. Oh, and I play with Herbie Hancock. It's not like a regular thing that gets. Hey, let me tell you, it's definitely not regular. And I'm every time he allows me to hang out with him, I'm very shocked. But Herbie is, uh, when I think about Herbie, he's like a chap. He's like, if if, if I had a book of just a few chapters, he would have a big one. He would have the chapter after Snoop because when I got with Snoop, Snoop taught me so much thing about manhood, being a father, being calm, being in business, keeping a player, keep them fly, be clean, execute the job, you know, be cool. Herbie taught me, relax, think it through, relax, take your time, don't rush. Nothing great happens fast, don't rush, take your time with everything in life, you know, so he's like the other end of the stick, you know. Actually, I'm going to go more than five for five, so I'm sorry. Just it's all good. You can go. I mean, you won't. Um, was it? Didn't Jay Leno have something to do with also? Like, oh yeah, Jay. Peace out to Jay. Jay was my guy. Jay, when I was like, when I was in eleventh uh, grade, it was it was getting it was time for me to start looking at colleges after twelfth grade, and it was like uh, every school was so fucking expensive. I was looking at you know, um, Cal Arts was expensive, USC. Manhattan School of Music, you know. But I was also fucking with Battle Cat when I went to college, so I didn't want to go to New York. And I didn't tell anybody. Up until this point, Robert, Kamasi, Thunder Cat, my mom, we all went to out there to look. I found an apartment in Brooklyn. I was going to do New York. I didn't tell nobody. I, I, I hated that fucking dream. It was an old dream, but I was scared to disappoint you know, especially the jazz community. I was like, you know, raised under Billy Higgins and stuff. So it was like, New York, go to New York. But then I got with Battle Cat and Snoop and it was like, 
I got to make this motherfucking bread, man. I like this, man. It's cracking out here, man. I need one of these cars and I need to get this cracker. This is nice, man. And I had kids, you know, you know. I had a kid at, at 16, another one at 18. You know what I'm saying? So I was already in college. I've been paying child support since I was a child at that time. So I was already in college still dealing with regular life stuff. So I was like, I need to get it cracking. So, uh, you know, Jay Leno had like a, comp- a a thing where he, they sought after, I mean, I mean, for what they thought were the, the top young musicians in all 50 states. And I happened to be one of the ones in California at the time. And uh, the deal was, I'm, you know, he said, man, I want to give you a full ride. Well, I had been going to the Jay Little show, right, to go fuck with Ralph Moore. Ralph Moore was my homeboy. That's a tenor player that was on Jay Little's show. I was ditching high school to go fuck with Ralph because I wanted to learn how to sight read like that. So I would ditch high school, go fuck with the, on, uh, the NBC lot. I'd be high as fuck, two joints, high school, walk up in that motherfucker smelling like we a kid and like looking looking at Ralph Moore read through the charts. And I was like, how does he do that? And I'd be so fascinated. So so Jay was kind of seeing me and shit around for like a year. I was fucking with him all for a year, Smitty Smith and everybody. So then when I got that that thing, he was like, oh, I'm plugging you in. And he, he paid for all my years at Cal Arts. And he bought me a saxophone. It was a King Super 20. Silver Sonic. No, King Super 20. Oh, it was a King Super 20 from 1954 with the pearl inlay. What? Just full full pearl. And he bought that horn for me from the horn connection. Yeah. You know what? I got to find my, I got to ask my mom. She got that videotape of that ceremony. I was 17. Yeah. And then after that, I started being on Jay Leno every other month with an artist for like seven, eight years, bro. Like, I did Jay Leno so much, bro. You know, thank yeah. God. It was a beautiful show. And every time I went to the show, I never act like, I always, I checked in, made sure I got my shit. And I went to the side of that stage and I kept looking out Ralph Moore the whole time. Crazy. Um, dinner party. Oh, yeah. I don't know. Tell me about it. Dinner party. Welcome to the dinner party. Dinner party is a... Uh, it's so good. Thank you, man. It's, it's a group that uh, myself, Robert Glasper, Ninth Wonder, and Kamasi Washington, uh, you know, this was an idea that, that me and Robert had. Then we went over to Ninth Wonder with the idea. We was going to name an early album called Bleak Gilliam with me, him, and uh, me, Robert Glasper, and Ninth Wonder. We never got around to doing it. And then two years later... We was I'm in the studio. I'm working with Kamasi every day anyway. We working on Kendrick. We working on Anderson Pack. Me and Kamasi, we working every day. Then I, I said, man, I need to do that motherfucking album. He said, what album? And I'm like, oh, yeah. So I started talking. And I'm like, bro, you want to be in this group? He's like, fuck yeah. Then we just did that album, Dinner Party. And it was like, yo, I'm going to put Kamasi in the group. It was like, yeah. And then Kamasi was in the group. And it was like, we a group, Dinner Party. It's, it's my first time in the group. So sick. Um, all right, last two, your mom and your dad. Everything. Like, my mom and dad are my best friends. Like, I'm fortunate to have a friendship and a, and a, and a son relationship with them, you know. We all grew up real tight. It's like we grew up tight. I was a, I was very free in my house. I grew up in a free household. They were free. We were very free. I, I, I could always speak my mind respectfully. Um, I was one of the kids that was able to have opinions. And I was one, I don't want to eat that. I don't like the way that tastes. It was respectfully. 
and they gave me a lot of a lot of freedom, and I thank God for that. I thank I thank the Creator that they gave me so much freedom, and, and they surrounded me with so many different people. It's like my father's a musician, so he has it's so many different friends. Spanish friends, white friends, Asian friends, African friends, uh, Dominican. I mean, so many different people would come a day. I, I never had a chance to even have an inkling to even know or feel what racism is growing up. And every walk of life came through South Central to fuck with us because of the art. So I never... I never saw and felt that shit. And I thank my mom. My mom and dad, they they didn't protect me from, they did protect me. They surrounded my environment with 100% artists. Even, even when crack was in, was in our world and my parents was going through their shit back and forth, we were staying out of motels and hotels for, motels for years. We, we lived in, at the Crenshaw Motel off and on for a couple of years and the LAX Motel. And I mean, we lived in motels because we was doing bad, but I, 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 it never felt like that. I still was dressing cool and I was still, they would take me to far ass zoo trips and far ass places. Or my dad would just be like, man, come on, come on, man. We're going to, he used to talk to me so rough. Nowadays they would call it abusive, but it's love. He's like, come on, little motherfucker. We're going to get in the car and play cold train for two hours. And I'd be like, fuck. Ah, no more jazz. Fuck. Cause I hated that shit. Cause that's all I heard young, but I didn't know he was planting a seed. You know, he was planting seeds and the soil was a little dry. I was soil. It was new, but it was dry. We planted seeds. He was planting seeds. And, and, and I think what he did was planting seeds. And one day when hip hop took control of my life, the creator made sure the hip hop that was coming past my life was Eric B and Rakim, Black Sheep, blah, 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 then Tribe Called Quest. And then it went, the tribe shit started connecting with the jazz shit. And then it went. But then I wanted to be a crip all my life growing up. I was like, I was really on some other shit young. So then the Crip shit and all this came together. The jazz shit is the non-racism everybody loves. Hip-hop shit is like that. Even the Crip shit is like that. If you if you a white dude grew up in a Crip neighborhood, you've been here a few years and, and the homies like you, you, you might get put on. It's all good. It's like you, you'd be surprised. Like racism is some old shit. That's some old white people, old shit. Like, like my friends... Man, when all this shit happened, I had so many friends call me crying, man. I didn't even know how to take that. Motherfuckers calling me crying. I said, God, why you fuck you crying for? I'm sorry, man. I said, hey, bro. One thing about me and my father, don't call me crying because I identify who the enemy is. You ain't the enemy. Hang up my motherfucking phone. I love you. We'll smoke some weed tomorrow. Bye. Play. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Don't worry. I love you. But don't worry about that. Just stay on your ground with me. Let's keep pushing this love and fuck this racism shit up. You know what I'm saying? That's how I look at it. That's the nest. That's, that's how I was. And my mom and dad did that. They made sure I was equipped where I could even go into the world and not get turned out by drugs or not get, you know, get, get, get with the wrong woman and fuck up. You know, I know so many, you know, Hey, I don't, you know, everything's so sad. I don't know what the fuck I could say no more, but my, lot of young friends I was growing up with were getting these relationships and get lose all focus and then rather turn the drugs, turn to this. So they just kept me, man, with my foundation, man. And I love, man, you know, and my foundation is God, my mom, my dad, family, music, and cripping. Hmm. Well, thank you. To, to the highest level. And when I say crip, because people get it all fucked up, community, research, and progress. 
You feel me? Like it's a meaning behind my biggest heroes come from my neighborhood first. And it wasn't the kind that was killing people or anything. It was the kind that took care of their families, made sure the neighborhood had food, made sure we had festivals and made sure we policed our own. Because in the black community, the police has never policed us. They just always harmed us. We've never been policed. And I'm sick of paying taxes so the motherfucking police could kill us. I'm 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 about to carve out these goddamn taxes as soon as my lawyer figured out it. I'm sick of paying so the police could keep killing us. I don't mind paying taxes for the paramedics and the teachers and the, 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 the trash companies, but the police, man, fuck y'all with love. No, man, we all want to carve out those taxes. None of us want that tax money to go to. Shit. Nah, man, not, not, we don't need to, we don't need to pay the police until they understand love is love and, yeah. and, and work it out. The police, the, you know, we, we, you know, and I'm, I keep bringing this shit up, man, because it's hard to talk about anything other than the true environment was going on, which is we got to we got to get this shit together. All of us got it. It takes all of us. You know, this is the first time I've seen so many white people marching with black people, man, and different national man. We we are love. This is fucking up. hate. Donald Trump is I know he's getting boo boos right now because he never seen so many different motherfuckers fuck with each other. I know he's shitting on himself every day. Diarrhea, green, or turmeric <laughs> orange. Hell yeah. Um, dude, thank you so much for doing this. It's all good, man. Uh, you know, hey, we, man, don't, we, we get, a, a, like I was when saying. When we meet up, we got to smoke. When we meet up, we got to smoke this, man. I, I'm I'm into it. Look, we, I was going to say, we, we've had, we have all kinds of guests. Um but I always admire the ones that can work with that integrity of making sure that the music they put out represents who they are as actual humans and to connect their art to who they are as a person. Cause we have a lot of, you know, a lot of people who are really good at, at understanding the matrix of commercial music and they, that that's their passion, and I respect that too, because that's a, that's a huge thing. But it, not everybody is putting out content in the world that actually makes a difference, and and where that's their mission statement is to put out real art that says real shit. And you know, you do that really well. And thank uh, you, brother. You know, thank you. Well, shit, man. Thank you. It's all love. I appreciate you, man. Be peaceful. Stay safe. Don't cool. go to, Don't eat the. Uh, cafeteria style food at Whole Foods yeah exactly alright that's it alright peace man thanks for listening to this episode of And The Writer Is if you want to hear music from this songwriter I just interviewed be sure to check out our Spotify playlist or visit our website at andthewriteris.com if you like what we're doing, please subscribe to us. You can also like us on Facebook and Twitter. And the Writer Is is produced by Joe London, edited by Miles Bergsma, and published by Big Deal Music. A special thanks to David Silberstein from Mega House Music and Michael White. Until next time, this is Ross Golden. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 